Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Alphabet, the parent company of Google, reports results after the close of trading today. To find out whether the stock is worth buying and whether the company is worth owning, we go to David Dietz. He is the founder, president, and chief investment strategist for Point of View Wealth Management, helping to manage more than $340 million. They're based in Summit, New Jersey. David Dietz, always a pleasure. Give us your thoughts on, uh, well, technology in general, but more specifically on Alphabet, the parent company of Google. Yeah, so Alphabet uh, has one of the best franchises on the planet. Um, they're going to come out with blowout uh, results, I think. Um, you know, the question really is twofold for investors at this point. You're based on various metrics. It is one of the most highly uh, valued stocks out there. One of, of course, the, the FANG cadre. So the question is, how much future earnings is already discounted? And then, of course, you've got the political developments here. Um, obviously, social media stocks are under fire. There was a disastrous breach of privacy of Facebook. I think there's going to be some new regulations, new measures taken. There's only one company on the planet that has more data on us than Facebook. is probably Google. Um, so that's another thing investors have to watch. And of course, there is questions as to monopoly power. That was asked heavily to Facebook. Well, you know, if you don't use Google to do a search, who do you use? I think that's the real question that ultimately investors have to weigh into um, their calculations in terms of whether to invest in Google today. So, David, just from your perspective, when uh, you decide whether or buy uh, whether to buy a stock, Apple is now down for the year, uh, down more than a percent. Is now a time that you would be interested in buying? You know, it's a better time. And if you uh, were not big FANG investors here, as it were, that certainly is the cheapest one. But there's there's clearly a reason. One is uh, the other companies are really services, media, content. Apple is much more of a product. Um, and so, you know, the question is, uh, when, how many, you know, uh, iPhone 10s are people going to buy? It's over $1,000. There's a lot of offerings that's less than that. And when they're all done buying, whatever they do buy, will we trade up to the iPhone 11? Um, if you go back five, 10, 15 years. We remember the Motorola uh, devices. We remember the Nokia devices. We touted our BlackBerry devices. Now it's all about iPhone. What will we be using five to 10 years from now? And will we be smart enough to make the transition at the right time? Those are some of the questions that Apple investors have to ask. David Dietz, what percentage of a, of a portfolio, if a certain percentage is in stocks, how much of that should be invested in stocks such as Facebook, uh, Alphabet, Apple, Netflix, and, and, uh, and Google? We think investors should be diversified, and that includes, of course, um, all the great technology names. But we're not focusing on the FANG portion. We're looking for um, more old tech that now is offering great 
dividends um, and is growing those dividends. Um, names that uh, we like here in terms of technology would include Intel, would include Cisco, would include Oracle. Uh, Microsoft, we've been big buyers of, although that too now is getting a little pricey. Um, Hewlett Packard has done well for us, and we wonder now with the sell-off in IBM whether a Meg Whitman type might ultimately take the reins there and do for IBM what Meg Whitman did for Hewlett Packard. That also could be very rewarding to shareholders. When was the last time that you changed a, a pretty substantial investing thesis for your portfolio? You know, we're pretty much stay the course. We certainly at this point now are looking quite heavily at income-oriented stocks. Why is that? Because these stocks have sold off dramatically. It started last summer, it accelerated this year out of fear of rising interest rates. But we think at this point there's a number of great franchises and income-oriented stocks, utilities, REITs, telecoms, which now are discounting the 10-year perhaps going to 4%. It, it could, but you know, you're at the, low, at the high point of the year in terms of yields. Uh, there are some concerns as to the strength of the economy. We'll find out more on Friday in terms of GDP growth for Q1. Wait, hold on one but, second. I'm sorry to break in there. You said we're at the high point in terms of yields. You mean, do you think that yields are going to come down from here? They started at 2.4 right. in terms of the 10-year. Right now, they're at 3. Um, will there be some retracement back? Uh, obviously, for everyone who's selling the 10-year Treasury today, someone else is buying. Um, it really depends on inflation. It depends on the strength of the economy. The economy looks good, but we're going to see a third quarter in a row of decelerating GDP. Retail sales have not been where a lot of people would like them to be. So, um, uh, you know, we think that uh, maybe this is the time, not necessarily for the 10-year bond, but to buy stocks that are discounting much, much higher interest rates, which would include um, REITs. Uh, the one that we like particularly now is Ventas, symbol VTR, which is your largest healthcare REIT in the country. That's kind of a defensive sector. The yield is now over 6%. It's down about 20% from its 52-week high. David Dietz, I'm glad you mentioned healthcare. What about CVS Health? You know, that's one of our top picks in the area. That's the other growth area besides technology. Um, CVS is one of the largest uh, drug retailers. They're also one of the largest PBM pharmacy benefit managers. Uh, the stock is trading at just over 10 times earnings, a 3% dividend. They're only paying less than a third of their earnings as a dividend, so there's room to grow that. What's the knock on the stock? There's been a couple knocks. One is that Amazon was going to dive into the business. They seem to have indicated they want to pull back on that. The other knock is they may be uh, they're buying Aetna, which will vertically integrate them. That's a great move, except they're paying an awful lot. But there's a good chance that merger does not go through. In any event, we think at the current valuation in kind of a growth area, which is you know more and more prescription drugs in the whole healthcare sector, a CVS is a good pick right now. Uh, David, I just want to get your thoughts real quick on shale companies, because we have seen the price of oil rise substantially with Saudi Arabia kind of giving it some uh, something of a tailwind. So I'm wondering, are you seeing opportunity there? We think energy is a good sector to keep accumulating in. It's probably the worst performing sector over the last 
decade. Uh, we saw fossil fuel prices well over 100. They got down back down to 26 two years ago. Now they're back up to knocking on the door of 70. If inflation does rear its head, if the global economy continues to grow, we think there will be an upward bias in fossil fuel prices, and certainly um, shale uh, plays will benefit. David Dietz, thank you so much for being with us. David Dietz, founder, president, and chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management in Summit, New Jersey. Definitely will be interesting to get those uh, Facebook, Google, Amazon.com earnings. Well, we learned today that Sears Holdings Chief Executive Eddie Lampert is offering to actually purchase the Kenmore appliance brand as well as other Sears units. This after the company was unable to actually find other buyers for the assets. Here to help us understand what's going on is Bert Flickinger. He is the Managing Director of Strategic Resource Group. He can be followed on Twitter at Bert underscore Flickinger. Okay, Bert underscore Flickinger. Can you explain what exactly is going on? Why is Eddie Lampert, who actually through ESL owns and basically runs Sears, why would he be buying these pro- these brands and these units from Sears if he already owns them? Pim and Lisa, a couple of reasons. One, he's getting the business, buy one, get one free. He controls the master leases on the real estate he's buying. Plus, plus, as you referenced, uh, he's getting the Kenmore brand, plus he's getting the home improvement brand, the ship business, the parts parts business, and the home repair business. And Lowe's uh, just had a CEO change because uh, they, they couldn't do all that. Sears has a loyal customer base, and he's doing it at the perfect time when Bonton, as Bloomberg reported last week, filing for liquidation. So from Bonton to Carson's to the uh, Herberger stores, Lisa knows well, as she knows the whole Bonton group across America, they'll pick up business there from our store checks. Land's End looks good. And Sears could actually survive to BTS 1 and 2, back to school 1 and 2 this summer, and potentially holiday on the strength of this deal and some of the less well-capitalized competitors going by the wayside. As Bloomberg already reported, Toys R Us, huge opportunities out there. So, Bert, this really goes to a fundamental question, which, frankly, is at the heart of a quite a big swath of, of, of the market, not just from retail stocks, but also commercial real estate. How do you evaluate this property? And, you know, is the deal that uh, Edward Lampert is get, getting, is it a good deal for him or is it a good deal for Sears? It's a good deal for Eddie Lampert. It's always a good deal for Eddie Lampert. Sears, Lisa, it's rarely a good deal for Sears. So how much is he paying? Do we know? He's pay he's paying in aggregate if he buys the um, quote unquote bundle that's about one point five billion. So it gives Sears enough cash to fend off Steinmart. Bloomberg's reported traveling uh, tr- trading low as well as these other companies contracting and collapsing. So what does this mean though about the value of the underlying property that he's getting, and what might it mean for the broader swath of retail connected commercial real estate out there? You're asking the important question, Lisa, and, and what it what it means is that is commercial real estate's traded down as reported on the Bloomberg by as much as seventy eight percent in the last year. There's underlying value in the A properties, of which Sears has a lot because it was the anchor tenant in many of the great American malls built in the sixties. Real quick, 70s, A properties 80s. are the A's higher are, end malls, right? Yes. Okay. 
and the best of the best. And Sears is uh, co-located in a lot of places that have good uh, co-anchor retail chains. Most importantly, can be converted to mixed-use lifestyle centers, so a mountain of money for Lambert to make and a mountain of money for Lambert to make on home delivery, home improvement, uh, Kenmore repairs and, and services, and controlling the master leases is, is, is brilliant. They're still selling stores, right? Still selling stores, and what's in the store, the Land's End product, is the best we've seen in five years. Cotton, very little oil and synthetic, very little rayon base. Better product in many cases uh, than what Target and some of the uh, leading uh, de- mid-tier department stores have. So uh, Land's End's uh, doing well. They're, compete- they're competing uh, with... The food retailers going bankrupt from Tops to Winn-Dixie to Bilo, Bloomberg reported, filed recently. And I'm not uh, pro Sears, yeah. uh, hoping for the best, uh, but concerned for the worst. But in the time being, this is a lucky deal for Eddie Lampert and not such a great deal for Sears. You know, I'm really struck by what you just said. It's always a good deal for Eddie Lampert. Is this a conflict of interest? Lisa, uh, your present point, it, it arguably is a conflict of interest. We've been following Eddie Lampert and Marty Whitman for close to 20 years since the Kmart bankruptcy, where the unsecureds got next to nothing in terms of recovery. Uh, Eddie Lampert, Third Avenue Capital, to your point, cornered the real estate, monetized it, and made billions off of it. So good deal for Eddie Lampert on the Kmart bankruptcy, good deal for Eddie Lampert on the combination of Sears and Kmart. Uh, not such a good deal f- uh, for every everyone else on uh, the secured side, the unsecured side, the supplier side, the shopping center side, and the, especially the shareholder side as the stock uh, roared up significantly this morning and has come back in the first hour of the news. Just quickly, Bert, uh, do they, do the, let's say the merchandisers at, at Sears or whoever's controlling kind of where the brand gets sold, other than the this Black, Stanley Black & Decker deal, do they, have, uh, do they see something about the future retailing which more uh, traditional retailers are missing? They, they do see something on the future of retail is... Uh, as you, you Lisa, Lisa and Tom Keene have reported so well so often, is family formations delayed. So you have a lot of rescue pets in the house. So people are buying for pets. Now they're buying apartments. Now they're buying homes. And as BJ's reported on its website over the weekend, people can't even assemble a, a swing set. So how are they going to put in a washer dryer for Kenmore? Sears gets the services high margin and gets the customer loyalty for life. So uh, brilliant as yeah. uh, people are getting married 10 years later, yeah. forming families, and it's on an up cycle for all, including Sears. And if you can't put together an Ikea chest, this service is for you. Bert <laughs> yes. Flickinger, Managing Director at Strategic Resource Group in New York. We love having you on. Thank you so much. The 10-year Treasury hitting more than 3%. What will that do for investors or to investors? Well, Holly Liss is Managing Director of Futures and Commodities Group for BTIG, joining us from Chicago. Holly, thank you very much for being with us. Begin by telling us about Treasuries at the 3%. What do you think would happen if they were to reach that level and stay there? Currently, the uh, 10-year Treasury trades at 2.97%. What's so magic about 3%? 
Hi, Pim. That's a good question. And I think for a lot of people, it's just the fact that it's a round number. It tends to both attract people and it also repels as well. So I think the critical statement you made was not only if it gets to 3%, but if it stays there. And actually, I'm looking at just above 3% is critical. It's actually 305 So that's going to be the level that I'm watching at. And also, like you said, does it stay there? Because I think clearly there's a lot of concern as we're approaching this magic 3% level, but there's also going to be people that feel that there's value in there because we haven't been up near 3% since 2013 at the very beginning of 2014. And like you had mentioned, does it stay there? It didn't really stay there back then. So if we don't stay there again, we just go up and test that level, there's going to be people that are going to look at value at that rate and want to put some money to work at investments at that level. So it is going to attract people, and it's also going to repel them. Holly, why have 10-year yields risen so much in the past week or five days? Well, there's a couple of things. You've had some of the FOMC members talking, and they've been a little bit more hawkish. They've been saying that they can see three, possibly even four hikes this year. And so they're thinking that the rates are going to be going higher just as a result of what the Fed is doing. But the Fed is, of course, going to be responding to what's going on in the economy. We have seen some stronger data. We certainly saw it this morning with the existing home sales came out stronger than had been expected not as strong as they were in February, but still good, healthy numbers. So that's part of it. Also, you've got commodities have been rallying. And as a result of that, people are thinking that there's going to be inflation percolating here. And so that's also bidding up the yields, taking prices down. So crude oil is at levels that we haven't seen in a while. The dollar index has been coming off, although not today. And so those type of inflationary pressures are also concerning the bond market. When do those concerns turn into action? What, does it have, what, what, what has to happen in order for people to change what they're doing? I think you're going to have to see more. You, I think you're going to need to see more of the actual inflation statistics. The one that the Fed tends to like, the PCE, personal consumption expenditures, that has not been anywhere near their 2% target. So I think you're going to really need to see that indicator start moving higher and getting closer to the Fed's target for people to believe that, number one, inflation is here and is going to stay and the Fed is going to respond to that. Or if you don't see those inflation numbers start picking up, then that's why I think you could have sort of a top at this 3% level. You know, Holly, one thing I'm trying to make sense of is that the uh, yield curve pretty much across the uh, maturity levels uh, seems to be close to the narrowest since 2007, usually indicated, uh, usually indicating uh, slower, longer term growth. Doesn't this feel incoherent with rapidly rising 10 year Treasury yields? It absolutely does. But that's one of the other reasons why we are flattening is because there still is a lot of demand for the long end of the curve. Number one, people do see value as you're approaching 3%, but also you've got people that are pensioners, long-term investors. You've got insurance companies that have demand at the long end of the curve, and so they are buying treasuries 10 years on out. And you also have foreign investors who don't have these type of yields in their countries, and so they're going into the U.S. market, and that's also what is keeping the longer-term rates lower relative to the short end, and that's why we are seeing the flattening of the curve. But yet you're not feeling it necessarily in the economy or in the stock market or feeling like there's a recession imminent.
for that matter. Holly, what's your best bet? Where do you think 10-year yields go from here? I think they are going to test that 3%. I think you are probably going to go through it. The Treasury futures are notorious for slicing right through a critical level. And since we're all looking for 3%, I do think they go through it. I don't think you have a lot of sustainability at this point above that 305 that I am looking at. And so I think you probably go up there initially, but that you get a lot of demand and come back down. Now, how much you come down, you could probably go to about, say, 285 in the near term, given that I don't think 3% will last. Holly Liss, thank you so much for joining us. Holly Liss, Managing Director for the Futures and Commodities Group at BTIG. We talk a lot in the U.S. about immigration partly because President Trump has made it uh, such a prominent part of his campaign and his platform, and he was tweeting again today about it. Uh, immigration concerns, though, are, are pretty uh, prominent throughout the country, and uh, our next guest has been dealing with a flood of refugees from Venezuela. Our next guest, I am proud to bring in the President of the Republic of Colombia, Juan Manuel Santos. President, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I want to talk about the refugees that you're getting from Venezuela. Uh, some people have said there's about 100,000 of legal immigrants coming each month, uh, probably many more. Uh, how much do you think that will decline in the upcoming months, and how are you handling it? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, and uh, it's a great pleasure to be here at Bloomberg, the situation is a very serious situation because it's a flow that is increasing every day. The situation in Venezuela is worsening, and that means that more people are going into Colombia to seek a better life. And not, not only Colombia, it's, they're going to other countries in South America. We have already more than one million that's a lot of people. If you compare that, for example, it's double the total immigrants or refugees that Europe has absorbed from Syria, twice. And the numbers are increasing. This, of course, puts a lot of pressure on our institutions, our health system, our education system. But we're coping with that. Uh, we, we have been trying to be generous with the Venezuelans, I, th I think it's our responsibility. It's the way we approach this type of problem, uh, trying to help them. But at the same time, we need to uh, to control uh, the flow in the sense that uh, it has to be a well-administered process. Otherwise, the the consequences are are serious. Uh, and we're handling that day by day. We we are learning from. Other experiences, we send to people from our Ministry of Foreign Affairs and our immigration institutions to countries like uh, Turkey to see how they cope with their refugees, with their uh, their problems, and uh, we've been searching for other sources of information and experiences, and we're learning. Uh, we're learning to cope with that. Hopefully, uh, we can find, uh, and the Venezuelans can find a, a solution to their problem because it's really an absurd situation. The richest country in Latin America, Venezuela, is now 
having a situation where the, the people are virtually, or not virtually, really dying of hunger. And this is a, a country that has the most, uh, the biggest oil reserves in the whole world. Going through that process, well, this is a very, very uh, sad situation, and that's why we are also doing every effort possible to try to have a transition as soon as possible, because this is a situation that is bad for everybody. Uh, President Santos, I'm glad you mentioned oil, because oil is a major export of uh, Colombia. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the economy of uh, Colombia, for people that may not be familiar with the country, and mention specifically what you're doing in the uh, the area of information technology and the fiber optic network in the, in the country. Oh, thank you for that question. Yes, oil is important uh, commodity for us. It's the most important commodity in terms of exports. And we coped with the uh, fall in the price of oil in a, I think, a, in a very uh, pragmatic way. And today, the the economy is is quite strong, in spite the decrease in the price of oil. Even though this has become a bit higher in the last months, uh, we are d- diversifying our economy. Um, to give you a, a reference, uh, when we came into power, we did not have investment grade. Today, we have investment grade. We introduce in our constitution the concept of fiscal responsibility, and we have a fiscal rule whereby we are obliged uh, to follow a path of uh, a fiscal deficit in order to maintain the confidence of international markets. This has been very successful. We are probably the only country in Latin America that went up two notches in our credit ratings and have maintained our investment grade uh, throughout all these years in, in spite of the problems that uh, the world and Colombia has has had. And in terms of technology, we made a very ambitious program to connect every single municipality with fiber optic and broadband, and we have fulfilled that. Now every single uh, Every single municipality is connected, and we have given computers to the people, especially the poor people. Uh, to give you a figure, uh, we had 24 uh, boys and girls per computer at the beginning of the government eight years ago. Today, we have three yeah. per computer. And what are we doing with that? We are uh, starting to teach them to use technology uh, in in ways that uh, will improve their education. We have tele-education in the schools. We have telemedicine in the rural areas. And that has uh, is starting to improve our productivity quite a bit. So uh, we just have a little bit of time left. I'm curious, uh, you're expecting to leave office later this year. Uh, what's your next step? Well, uh, I'm going to be a grandfather. Congratulations. For the, for the first time, I'm going to take care of my granddaughter. Uh, I want to, So you're going to be a full-time grandfather? <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, have a lot of offers to, to teach and to be, give conferences, and I want to write. The experience that we have had these eight years is a very interesting experience in, in many ways, and I think it's my obligation to share that experience with the world, and so I'm going to write, teach, and take care of my granddaughter. Are you still going to be involved in politics at all? No. No, I think... Uh, um, that uh, I had my chance, and uh, I will leave my successor to uh, be 
himself. Uh, there is a, a very bad habit in Latin America of presidents trying to maintain a bit of power, and that is usually counterproductive. Thank you very much for spending time with us, uh, President Juan Manuel Santos, the President of the Republic of Colombia. Much appreciated. No, thank you for this opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.